0: No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply.
2: And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. you You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday, post-Thanksgiving Saturday. Hope you had a great day. The other day, and continuing it uh, into the weekend. We've got a lot to do today. Um, let me start off here. Well, we got to talk about fake news a little later, which is hilarious that the, the real news is making a big deal about fake news. And we're going to give a couple of examples of how the real news is more fake news or as fake as the fake news. And the whole fake news story is a fake news story. And how Benjamin Franklin was... A strong purveyor of fake news. <laughs> Pretty funny. So we'll tell some funny Franklin stories coming up a little bit. Um, but I want to talk here for a minute um, about how to talk politics over Thanksgiving. Now you're saying, well, hold on a so second. That was two days ago. Thanks for nothing. Uh, our family meal ended with silverware thrown across the table. Uh, been there. I come from a split family. My dad was conservative. My mom thinks Hillary hung the moon. We've had many a Thanksgiving. We've had many a dinner And with thrown silverware. So I know, I I know, I know what you're doing, right? I've been been there, done that. Uh, So we're a couple days late on this, but maybe you still got family over and Christmas is right around the corner. And all of this advice is relevant, relevant for any day of the week, not just Thanksgiving. Now, I do actually want to talk about Thanksgiving in general, a little later about how our founding fathers viewed Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was originally called a day of Thanksgiving and praise, if you read any of our founding fathers, uh, maybe around up to Abe Lincoln a couple years after that, their proclamations on the day of Thanksgiving and praise were the most religious writings you've ever read. Like if you read some of these proclamations in some churches today, people in the audience would be blushing. They'd be like, oh, geez, that's, that's, that's pretty Christian. There. I mean, like it's pretty intense stuff. And it was actually a day of fasting. It was a day of fasting, so not eating and prayer. And now it's gorging and watching football. So it's so it's gluttony and idolatry. that's what we, we turned Thanksgiving to the opposite of its original intent. But anyway, we'll talk about that a little later. Um, let's talk about advice about talking politics with family. Really my first piece of advice is pretty simple. Don't. Just just don't. <laughs> don't don't do it. Resist the urge completely especially over family gatherings. Just just don't do it. But if you must, If you must engage in a political discussion, here are some prerequisites that must be met before you proceed. First prerequisite, all political conversations must be had one-on-one and I'll explain why in greater detail coming up. Uh, But when groups of people talk politics, it gets out of control way too fast. And then people start teaming up on people and everyone gets super defensive and it's just bad. And Because once someone's guard gets up, it's over. So first prerequisite, only talk politics if it's a one-on-one discussion. Now that means not at the table. So after dinner, when you're sitting on the couches or whatever and you can have a one-on-one conversation with someone, that's the only time that you can really talk politics. Second prerequisite, if you sense a hint of emotion coming from either yourself or the other person right a hint of emotion coming from their tone of voice meaning they start talking faster or their pitch goes up or their volume goes up even the slightest bit it's over end it you're out have an escape route ready right so when you sense emotion coming into the equation just so the cubs huh you see game seven? That was crazy, right? Like you just, you, you're out because nothing good. Once emotion enters and even, and you're just going to see a seed of it at first. But when it's there, it, there's no going back. It's over. So if these prerequisites are met, then you may proceed. Now, at this point, you have to decide what it is you want to do. You have two options. Do you want to win the argument Or do you want to change the other person's mind? Those are two very different things. If you want to win an argument, it's pretty easy. Uh, You talk confidently. You bring in confusing numbers and you confuse them. Uh, You talk longer. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can win an argument and... That's fine. But at the end of that, I mean, you just sort of both go your separate ways. You feel good about yourself because you won. They feel bad about themselves because they lost, but still they, you know, dig themselves even more into the position they held before, even though they lost the argument. So everyone just sort of goes their separate ways and are kind of mad at each other. So winning an argument doesn't, doesn't really do anything. So I recommend if you, if you want to try to change the other person's mind. It's a lot harder, but it's the only thing that's really worth the time. Now, if you choose to go down that road, a few things you need to know. First thing, you probably won't. People rarely change their minds on anything ever. Rarely ever. I think a silly example of this, though, but still kind of works, is food. Food is there a food that you eat today that you grew up your whole life thinking you did not like? Right? So for me, it was olives. I thought my whole life, I hated olives. Now I love olives. It took me 20 years to change my mind on olives. Okay. Now, olives don't even matter. Now try to change someone's mind about a political decision that they made 20 years ago. It is so hard to get someone to change their mind. Really, you can't. The other person has to have an has to be open to wanting to change their mind, which is almost never the case. Very few people are humble enough to want to learn or to want to understand another person's point of view. Or uh, heaven forbid, people want to change their mind like that never happens. Have you think about it yourself? Have you ever wanted to change your mind on something like that's not how we're wired. We, we're not wired that way, so it's very very hard to change someone's mind because we associate our opinions with our own self worth. So to admit that we may not know something is to admit that I'm stupid or to admit that I'm wrong is to admit that, that I'm worthless, right? To admit that I I may not know everything about a given topic, is to admit that I'm ignorant and almost no one wants to do that. So point number one, if you are trying to change someone's mind on an issue, you probably won't. You got about a 10% chance. That's about what we're working with. Now, if you do change someone's mind, you have to know that it won't be on the spot. Never, never has there been a political conversation where, you're talking to someone, and the other person goes, wow, you have totally changed my mind on that issue. Thank you so much. Never, never happened. The best you can do is plant a seed, a seed that maybe one day will germinate into something, uh, something bigger. And you may never know that you changed their mind, because it may be months from now, and they may never tell you, but you planted the seed, and you have to be okay with not seeing victory, if you will. Okay, so that's point number one of that. Um, you probably won't change their mind. Second thing, you definitely won't turn a progressive into a conservative. That's impossible. So you have to focus on one issue, right? Think about like your, think of the progressive friend you know or family member, right? Someone who was at Thanksgiving, crazy Aunt Sally. Okay, loves Hillary or no, loves uh, Jill Stein. Okay, <laughs> right? Hillary wasn't far left enough, right? You know what There's no way you're going to have a conversation with that person with your Aunt Sally. And have her be like, you know what? I I love the Second Amendment now. Right? Like, and, and you're a big-time conservative across the board. It's just not going to happen. So you got to focus on one issue, one specific issue, and stay on point. So let's take the Second Amendment. Let's say you want to talk about the Second Amendment. Don't let them bring in any other topic. Don't let them bring in um, – don't let them say something like, well, uh, you may want more guns, but – you know, there's too much crime in our inner cities and that's because there's not enough police or whatever. No, 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 no. Don't even let them beg Aunt Sally. that That's something else. Um, let's table that conversation for a second. I want to focus on this. I want to focus on this one specific thing first. right? Don't let them bring in any other topic. Got to focus on one. You can't have two conversations at once. You just can't. But people, when they feel like they're drowning, when they feel like their mind is starting to be changed, when they feel what, when people are confronted with arguments they've never heard before, our minds are very quick to want to change the topic, change the subject into something we're more comfortable with. Right? So let's say you're talking about um, you being able to buy a gun or let's say you being able to buy a high capacity magazine or whatever, right? If you start making an argument and she has never heard it before, and she's starting to get into an uncomfortable zone her brain will go, I don't like it here. Let me bring up something I'm more comfortable talking about. Don't let them do that. You got to bring them back to the place where you are right now. Cool. Last tip. And then I'll get to the super specifics and really the only, the, the most important rule I'll get to next. Final point. If you have a breakthrough, stop. This is the George Costanza rule. Quit when you're ahead. If you see the person you're talking to, now you will only see it in their body language. They will never say these words out loud. But if you see them change their their facial expression or body language as if to say, hmm, I've never thought of that before. Out. You're done. They'll never say those words. Usually they'll pause and look up in the air. And as soon as they do that, You say, "Oh, hey, uh, I think I think mom's calling me. I got to go peel the potatoes." You're on. You're gone. You're out. You got to stop on your head. Stop on your head on that one issue. Let them sit on it. Let them let them stew in it. You've done your job. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) You're out. All right. So those are the rules. Now maybe you didn't follow these on Thanksgiving. That's why things didn't go well. But you have another chance next family gathering. Here are the rules. One on one. When you hear a hint of anger or frustration or emotion of any kind, it's over. It's already over. You can't save it. It's already gone. Second point, you will almost never change somebody's mind. But if you want to try, it's got to be on one issue. Don't let them deviate. And you gotta know when to go out. Those are the rules on how to have a political conversation with family. Other than, of course, just don't, which is the big one. Now you're saying, Slater, these are these are very nice. Okay, fine and dandy, but any more specifics. All right. I want to give you the ultimate ultimate point next. There's only one way to change someone's mind on an issue. You have to know that other person's moral foundation. It's a term in social psychology called moral foundations. You can only reach another person if you know their moral foundations and you have to know it in order to speak in their language. I will explain all of this next. Now, if you can do this, this is a game changer for you. And if you can't, then you'll probably never change someone's mind on an issue ever. Just, it's, it's that blunt. I'm putting it that blunt. So we'll explain that next. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
4: You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
0: No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when cancelled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply.
2: This is Mike Slater.
3: All right, here's the important part. So the question is how can you change someone's mind in a political conversation? Now, around Thanksgiving, or you know, you still got people over, Christmas coming up, or a Wednesday. How can you really change someone's mind on something? Let me back it up. Um, there's a book I recommend everybody reading. It takes about uh, two hours to read. It's really short. It's called The Five Love Languages by I think Gary Chapman. So it's I think I think it's a faith based book, but I don't even know if it really is. So um, or like it doesn't have to be. So the idea is there are five love languages. Everybody has one of them. Uh, the five love languages are words of affirmation. So, uh, honey, you are such a great provider for the family, right? Words of affirmation, acts of service. So cleaning up the kitchen before your wife wakes up or something that's active service, receiving gifts, quality time and physical touch. Those are the five love languages, words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, physical touch. Everyone is one of these. And then a little bit of each of the others. So for instance, I am words of affirmation. That is my love language. So the way for my wife to show me love is to say encouraging things. You know, she gives me a gift. It doesn't, it's like, okay, like that, like thanks, I don't really need that. Like, like, you know what I mean? But if she says things to me, it'd be like if she gave me the nicest gift in the whole world. Now, here's the key to this. My wife's love language is quality time. Now, my love language is words of affirmation. I assumed early in our marriage that that was my wife's love language too, right? The way that I received love, I assumed was the way that she received love because why not? So I would say really nice things to her, which she appreciated, but that's not her love language. Her love language is quality time. Now I'm a bit of a workaholic. So when we first got married, I didn't know that was her love language. So I didn't spend enough quality time with my wife. We didn't go on enough date nights. I wouldn't put my work down at a certain time and I wouldn't just have good quality time. And after a while, she got upset. And I'd say stuff like, you know, but I always compliment you. I always praise you. I always tell you how wonderful you are and how beautiful you are. Now. And that's good. But that's not her love language. We don't have the same love language. So now I had to realize she has a different love language. So if I want to show her love, I have to speak her language. I have to spend quality time with her. So this book, The Five Love Languages, really quick. It teaches you um, what your spouse's love language is. And also how to speak it so that they hear it. It's the same thing with talking politics. There's six what they call moral foundations. For the sake of simplifying it, I'm just going to go with four of them. Care and fairness. Care and fairness, those are two. Number one, care. Number two, fairness. Number three, authority slash respect. And then number four is purity. So progressives put a greater emphasis on care and fairness conservatives put the emphasis on respect and purity. So if you want to change someone's mind on an issue, which again is different than winning an argument. If you want to win an argument, that's easy. Just speak confidently. You win. But if you want to genuinely change someone's mind on an issue, you need to know what their moral foundation is. And this is again why I I said earlier in the last segment that every conversation has to be one-on-one. Because in a group, different people have different moral foundations. So you can't speak to each of them all at the same time. So let's just pick an issue real quick. Um, In California, we voted on whether or not schools should teach English to immigrants. Okay, Progressives are generally against it. And conservatives are generally for teaching immigrants English. Now, I'm a conservative. The argument that appeals most to me is the authority, tradition, purity argument. This is America. We are united in common traditions, and that includes language. And you need to speak English, and it's disrespectful to be here and not be able to speak English and communicate with people who live here. Okay, that, 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 that's a good argument for me. And that appeals to conservatives, but that, the goal is to appeal to your crazy Aunt Sally, who's a progressive. She has a different moral foundation. Her moral foundation is care and fairness. So if I say, oh, it's America, speak the language or get out, like that won't appeal to her. She's care and fairness. So my argument for her would be, Aunt Sally, I'm for everyone learning English because if an immigrant can speak English, they will have more job opportunities and they can better provide for their family and they'll face less discrimination in their lives. Same conclusion, immigrants should speak English. But she will listen to this argument because it appeals to her moral foundation. I'm speaking in her political language, if you will. Caring and fairness. I got to take a break here. I got a few more examples of this next. But the only way you will ever change someone's mind on an issue is if you understand this. I'll give you one more example coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: to Mike Slater is talking about Thanksgiving and uh, talking politics at it. Sorry, I couldn't give you this message You know, before Thanksgiving, but we have Christmas coming up, so I can salvage another holiday if it went poorly the other day. Uh, the first rule about talking politics around a family gathering like this is don't. Just don't. If you must. Some preconditions, which we already talked about, I'll blow through them. Uh, only one-on-one conversations, and when you hear a hint of emotion, uh, coming from you or them just stop it's over it's already over there's no going back once someone gets emotional in even the slightest bit you can't go back it's just impossible so if you hear emotion you're out um if you want to engage you got to know that you will almost never change someone's mind on an issue it's got about a 10 percent chance if you want to try it's got to be on one issue do not let them deviate in any way and you got to go out at just the right time it will not end with wow charlie You're so smart. I can't believe I was so wrong for my entire life on this issue. Thank you so much for enlightening me. Like that will never happen. So you just got to look for a facial expression. They won't say it, but in their body language, they'll say, "Hmm, I've never thought of that before. And that's when you you just go leave. You planted the seed. That's all you can do. They'll have an inquisitive look on their face. "Hmm, I've never, never heard that argument. And then you're out. That's the best you can do. So, um, last segment, we talked about body, uh, excuse me, uh, moral foundations. I call them political languages. You need to know this stuff. If you really want to change someone's mind. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about, um, how your view on government, I said, yeah, yeah. Your view on the federal government and government in general. Is generally based on how you run your family. Uh, is it? Do you have a more? Uh, a, 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 do you run a more strict household, or do you run a more? You know, raise your kids in a more like, oh, we're friends, and <laughs> that kind of, So there's a lot of correlation there. We did that a few weeks ago. Similar here. Um, there's there's six moral foundations. Care, fairness, liberty, loyalty, authority slash respect, and purity. So for the sake of simplicity, we're focusing on four. Progressives are mostly care and fairness. Those are their moral foundations. And conservatives are generally uh, authority, respect, and purity. So if you really want to change, let's say, a progressive's mind, you got to speak their language. Otherwise, they're just not going to hear it. They won't hear you. And it's weird because the argument that you're making appeals to you. Right? You're like, it makes sense to me. Why doesn't it make sense to you? It's because you're not talking the same language. It's the same thing I was talking about earlier with love languages. Right? Like, I'm like, wife, I'm telling you how beautiful you are and how wonderful you are and how amazing you are. And she's like, yeah, that's not my love language. I just want you to spend time with me. Or whatever. Right? Or I gave you this gift. Why don't you, why don't you love it? Why don't you love me more? Look, I'm showing you how much I love you. And the person's like, I like... Uh, uh, words of affirmation. I want you to tell me how wonderful I am, not just give me things, right? Everyone is different love language. Same thing with this. You can tell someone all day long these arguments that make perfect sense to you, but you're just not speaking their language. Now, whose fault is that? I don't know. Yours, really. Because everyone's just different. So the argument I gave in the last segment, if you're a conservative, you generally believe that immigrants should learn English. All right? Progressives generally don't think you know, English should be an official language or it should be taught in schools as a higher priority or whatever. So, if I were talking to a conservative, I'd say, Yeah, and then you've got to speak English. You just have to. You move here, you live here. What are we doing? Like, you got <laughs> to speak English. We all speak English, common tradition, common heritage. We want to communicate. You got to speak English. Just have respect for this country you're living in, speak the language. Okay. If I say that to a progressive, they think that's rude. It doesn't speak their language. So you got to make the argument speaking their language, which is something like, you know, immigrants, Aunt Sally, crazy Aunt Sally, immigrants who speak English have a far better likelihood of, of getting a job. And then they can provide for their families. And it's less likely that they'll be discriminated against. So same argument or same end, same conclusion, but it's framed in terms of caring and fairness. This is essential. Think of it, it is as essential as literally speaking the same language, right? If you're speaking, if you speak Japanese and I'm speaking German, like I'm going to have a tough time talking about how everyone should have the right to own a gun to you, right? Like we're literally speaking different languages. So if you're speaking Japanese, I can only even begin to change your mind on this issue if I learn Japanese so I can speak to you in literally the same language. Same thing with political language. So let me pick another um, another issue. And then in the next segment, I want to flip it around. And I'm going to assume that you're conservative. And I'm going to try to make a progressive argument to you. you know, we're going to do a little like uh, debate 101. Like debate in high school and college, you have to be able to take both sides. So I'm going to give you a a progressive issue and see if I can change your mind. But I'm going to do it by speaking a conservative language. So it'll appeal to you more. Um, all right, but let's do, uh, let's do second amendment. All right? So if I tell a progressive, uh, listen, we need the second amendment because the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Nah, that'll never work. That argument's never changed anyone's mind. That that That's a good argument for me. But then I'll never convince a progressive ever. It just won't happen. So what's a good Second Amendment argument? First of all, Second Amendment is still kind of a broad issue. You should kind of narrow it down to one specific thing, but we'll go with this. Uh, I got to appeal to caring and fairness. So if I was talking to Crazy Aunt Sally, Progressive Aunt Sally, I'd say, well, let me do two. First one would be Sally. I support the second amendment because there's a lot of single moms and families who live in very dangerous neighborhoods. And I think they need to be able to protect their children and just leave it there. See what they do with that. Now the reason I hesitated there is because my final piece of advice before we take a break and I flip it around, is the best way to change someone's mind is to get them to change their minds themselves. Huh? Ask questions. The, the best way to change someone's mind is to think that they brought themselves to that conclusion. People don't like to be forced. First of all, people don't like to be proven wrong. So if you're a progressive, Aunt Sally has always thought one thing if you prove them wrong, they're less likely like no one's humble enough to be like, wow, you really wow, i have been wrong this whole time. Thank you for enlightening me. Like that just doesn't happen. So uh, you don't want to force them in a position. You want to lead them to that position. So the only way to do that is with questions. So even the way I started that last argument, you know, hey, Sally, I support the Second Amendment. Like that turns that per- turns them off because they're like, I don't care what you think. Generally, that's what we think when people tell us what they believe. No one cares what you believe. Like really, like, no one cares what other people believe. They only care what they, they they believe, so question what they believe, so it'd be like this, Aunt Sally, don't you think that single moms who live in really dangerous neighborhoods and you know police are are slow to respond? do you think that that a mom should be able to protect her children? And you can take it from there, but you get the idea. Do you see how that's that's as much softer than, but also much more effective than, well, I support the Second Amendment because it's like, Sally, don't you think? <laughs> you guys see this is a totally different starting point and it changes everything. All right, last segment here. We'll wrap this up. We'll move on to other things. I want to take a break. I wanna, I'm going to assume you're a conservative and I'm gonna I'm going to try to convince you of a progressive argument. I'll I'll just, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to convince you to be in support of same sex marriage. All right. So I'm going to pretend I'm a progressive. You're a conservative and I'm going to speak to you, not in progressive language. I'm going to speak to you in conservative language to try and see if I can change your mind on this issue. Now, please know I'm, I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm just showing you how effective it is to speak the right language we'll do that next Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network spread the word
4: Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network Mike
3: Slater a quick note and we'll talk more about this later um but in light of castro dying just just a reminder to everyone particularly at msnbc you don't have to say nice things about everyone who dies you know like you don't yeah your crazy aunt Sally, for instance maybe you never got along with her she passes away okay you can say a couple nice things at the funeral calling out when Castro dies, you, you you don't have to say nice things about him. Okay, you don't don't feel obligated to search for some. Just say nothing. Okay? You don't have to talk about how he dramatically improved health care on the island and all that stuff. Even though impoverished, you know, millions killed, tens of thousands. Uh, oh well, real great, great uh, literacy. Yeah, you know, a lot of people learn how to read in Cuba. So you know you don't have to say any nice things at all. Just 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 zip it. All right. So I'm going to flip it around here. Uh, I want to prove to you how important knowing someone's moral foundations are. I call them political language. It's a social psychology term. It's called moral foundation. So I'm going to make, so what I've been doing here is, is giving advice on how to talk to your progressive friend, family member. You got to speak in their language in terms of caring and fairness, but I'm going to flip it around. I'm going to make a progressive argument to you. I'm assuming you are a conservative. Now, I'm not going to change your mind on this issue, okay? Because as we said earlier, that's almost impossible to do. And I'm not going to change your mind. I'm just going to get you to start thinking about it in a different way. And you'll feel a difference, okay? Now, I want to be very clear. This is not how I feel. Genuine. this is not how I feel. I'm just showing you how this would work. So if you are a conservative, you're probably against same-sex marriage. Now, uh, the, the other two moral foundations that we didn't talk about here... That's more libertarian. Okay. But I just want to simplify it for the sake of uh, radio here. So um, if you are a conservative, you're probably against same sex marriage. So I'm going to make two different arguments to you, the conservative again, pretend I'm progressive and I'm for same sex marriage. Okay. So I'm going to make two different arguments for same sex marriage. And I want to see which one of these two has a better chance of convincing you. Okay. Argument number one, conservative person, you have to be in support of same-sex marriage because it's only fair that gay couples get to be married and enjoy the same rights as everybody else. Okay, how does that argument make you feel? Gut response to that argument. You reject it. Straight up, you reject it, doesn't it? it's only fair. Like what? You don't Like it doesn't even, you can't, it means that argument means nothing to you. I'll do it again. Listen, to, like feel like sense. How you feel when I said, Hey, Charlie, it's only fair that gay couples get to be married and enjoy the same rights that everybody else does. Your first response is like, well, get out of here. Why? Because your moral foundation as a conservative is not based on caring and fairness. Your moral foundation as a conservative is based on authority and purity. So I'm going to make another argument here. Same conclusion. Okay. Same sex marriage. I'm for it as a progressive. I'm pretending to be progressive, but you'll feel differently when I make the argument this way, appealing to your moral language. Are you ready? Charlie, gay Americans are, loyal and patriotic Americans who contribute to the military and the economy and they deserve the same rights that you have as an American. Now, I'm not saying you're suddenly like, oh, wow, I do agree with same-sex. like, no, no, no. But do you see how that argument appeals to you at least a little bit more than the previous argument? Why? Because that argument appealed to your moral foundation of Patriotism and the military and productivity and tradition, right? Like the oh you know, they contribute to the military and the economy, right? I mean, like, oh yeah, like that speaks your language even just a little bit more and opens you up to the argument much better than, well, it's only fair. You're like that, whatever. Right? So just an example. Keep this in mind. Next family gathering, maybe you still got family over, or you got another Thanksgiving to go to, right? You got a couple different family. Uh, family houses to go to, you split them up over the weekend. Uh, Just keep all that in mind when you're having a political conversation. Try to speak the other person's language. If you're trying to convince a progressive, put every topic in terms of caring and fairness. Now, which is pretty interesting if you want to bring it back to Castro. All the progressives who are talking about the great things that Castro did, they're ignoring, (laughs) you know, obviously tens of thousands of deaths, but it's all in terms of, oh health care oh there's you so good for and literacy right it's all based on caring and loving blah blah blah. like those are all the nice things that they say about him because that's the types of things that appeal um, to progressives all right i want to come back talk uh do a follow up here on the great divide in our country remember we talked about this last week it's not rich versus poor it's not black versus white it is city versus country I gotta follow up to that, that's really important. And the latest, uh, well, not the latest, let's say Thomas Jefferson, right? You've heard before, oh, it's racist a slave owner, just a slave owner. He shouldn't listen to anything he's ever done or ever said, because he's a slave owner. We gotta chat about that. We're gonna provide some proper context there for your progressive and Sally. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: You are listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater in three, two, one. You are listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Slater, consider America's the greatest country in the world. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving the other day. Welcome to a beautiful Saturday. Want to chat about the Great Divide in our country? We did last week. Talked about um, how it's not rich versus poor it's not black versus white it's city versus country and i want to prove here that it's been that way for thousands of years obviously not in our country but that divide between people has been there for thousands of years real quick just to prove again the divide in america um so the wall street journal let me quote headline advertisers search for middle america so advertisers are grappling with a stark realization After spending years courting U.S. consumers with aspirational images of upscale urban living, they may have misjudged the yearnings of much of their audience. In the wake of Donald Trump's election as U.S. president with a wave of support from middle American voters, uh, advertisers are reflecting on whether they are out of touch with the same people, rural, economically frustrated, elite, distrusting, anti globalization voters who propelled the businessman of the White House. Um... Mr. Trump's rise has them rethinking the way they collect data about consumers, recruit staff, and pitch products. Right? So imagine you got all these execs on Madison Avenue coming together saying, we've been trying to... Or every product we've been pitching. And think about it. Every, watch every commercial, right? Every commercial for laundry detergent or whatever. It's a yuppie couple living in a New York City apartment, right? <laughs> and they just assume that that's how everyone lived. And that's how everyone... If they don't live that way, it wishes that they lived. And now they hmm, maybe that's not true. Here's a, a big marketing guy. He says, marketing needs to reflect less of New York and LA culture and more of Des Moines and Scranton. I'll give you an example the other day, my wife and I were flicking through the channels. Whatever reason we stopped on MTV, there's some movie on or something. And the first commercial, this was last week, the first commercial was CoverGirl. And the pitch person was a transgendered guy. A kid, it was like a, like a 19-year-old maybe, right? Like a guy dressed up as a girl, transgender guy, like pitching cover girl. I am like, "What the heck is this? Like who who is this for?" It's not for anyone in Des Moines and Scranton, I'll tell you that. So it's a perfect example. I'll give me another one. The um Bud Light commercial with Amy Schumer. Don't even get me started on Amy Schumer who decided that she's Supposed to be the funniest person in the world, Amy Schumer, uh, Bud Light, talking and preaching and lecturing about wage inequality. Have you seen? <laughs> have you seen this? It's a Bud Light commercial that plays during football games with Amy Schumer lecturing guys about income or wage inequality, gender the gender wage gap. It's like, what, what? Who wrote this? Who thought this would ever be a good idea? I'll tell you, ad executives in New York City who live in their bubble. But no football fan. <laughs> like, like, I think I imagine, like, like, the Raiders game this weekend. There are people like, what? Like, why am I being lectured to about wage inequality? All right, so so these advertisers are starting to get a little wake-up call as well. Now, this great divide in our country, city versus country, this is an ancient theme. Ancient. As long as there have been towns and country folk, there has been this great divide. It is nothing unique to America and it's nothing new. I want to share an Aesop's fable here real quick. Aesop's fable, they were written in 500 BC. Crazy, right? It was 2,500 years ago. So Horace, who was a Roman poet in 50 BC or maybe 50 AD, I forget, 2,000 years ago. He tells a story of how he lives on a farm in the country and how he had to go to the city one day and he hated it. I hated it. Couldn't wait to get back to his country home. So he goes on and he tells the Aesop fable about the country mouse and the city mouse. So the short of it is the country mouse uh, invites the city mouse to his tiny little hole in the wall out in the country. So the city mouse comes and the food is very simple and everything is meager. There's nothing fancy about it. And the city mouse looks down on the country mouse. Uh, the city mouse is very elite, looks down on this country mouse and he says, mouse, you got to come home with me. You got to, you got to come to the city and see what life is really all about. So the country mouse joins the the city mouse back to his house in the big city. And the city mouse is, uh, he's like, he's like the rat in Ratatouille. I love that movie. He loves, uh, fine food. All right. So the country mouse is feasting. Oh, he's loving it. Oh, he's loving every minute. He's getting drunk off city life. So they're coming to the end of their feast and the country mouse is, is lusting about new life in the city. He's like, man, what have I been missing? I've been living my whole life in the country thinking life was great, but here I am in the city. I'm only here a couple of hours. I love this place. It's perfect. It's amazing. Everything about this is fantastic. This is what life is all about. And as soon as he's thinking about all that, two giant Guard dogs, these massive dogs run in and break up the party and chase the mice all over the place. And the country mouse is running away and he's cursing himself. Like, how could I be so stupid to get into this? And he's running back to his house. He's like, he's running out of the, the wherever building they're in. And he's going back to his house and he yells back to the city mouse. He says, It may do for you, this life, but I don't like it. So I say, Adieu. Give me my hole secure from all alarms. I will prove that tares and vetches still have charms. Tares and vetches is just like simple food, like grain, right? I'll prove that tares and vetches still have charms when I'm in my hole, secure from all alarms. Uh, The modern translation of this is better beans and bacon in peace than cakes and ale in fear. So the mouse is like, who needs the trouble? That was written in 500 B.C. And it's the same thing today. Why did Trump win? Because trends start in cities and not all the trends are good. We quoted David Wong of crack.com. Remember he grew up in, um, in the country, grew up in Illinois and now he lives in Chicago, but he's a Democrat in the big city now. Right. And he says the first time he went to, uh, Chicago, he felt like Katniss, going to the Capitol for the first time. he's like, well, what is this? place?" so he wrote a letter after Trump won to his fellow Democrats who have only lived in the city and who, who only get that, right? They don't understand the country at all. He grew up in the country. He gets it. And he's saying, listen, people in the country, look at what's going on in the city. And they see that if we keep going down this road, it's going to be bad. The savages are coming. <laughs> and this is what he said. Now this is an exaggeration, but this is how people perceive this blacks riot. Muslims set bombs, gays spread AIDS, Mexican cartels behead children, atheists tear down Christmas trees. Meanwhile, those liberal Lena Dunhams in their $5,000 a month apartments sip wine and say, oh, but those white Christians are the real problem. Terror victims scream in the street next to the street next to their own severed limbs. And the response from the elites is to cry about how men should be allowed to use women's restrooms and how it's cruel to keep chickens in cages. Country versus city. So Trump comes to the American people and says we need law and order. Not a police state, but just order, peace. As the country mouse said, a life free from ambush. Right? I think the American people are worried and rightfully so about a, a cultural ambush. Or we've seen it happening already. And, and and just people just want to be want to live secure from all alarms and want to prove and stick it to the elites that tears and vetches still have charms. One eight eight nine hundred thirty three ninety three. I'll end with this real quick. David Wong, he says the foundation upon which America was undeniably built family, faith and hard work has been deemed unfashionable and small minded those snooty elites up in their ivory towers laughed as they kicked away that foundation and then wrote 10,000 word think pieces blaming the builders, that's you, for the ensuing collapse. So they tore down the foundation and then they blamed you for how things are going poorly. It's a theme as old as time. one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
4: This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: What can a person like you do?
1: What if there was a place where the unthinkable didn't happen and life could continue for progressive Americans just as before?
5: Now there is. Welcome to the bubble. Coming in January 2017, the bubble is a planned community of like-minded free thinkers and no one else.
1: So if you're an open-minded person, come here and close yourself in
5: in here, it's like the election never happened.
1: While who knows what the hell is happening outside in their America, the bubble will be a fully functioning city state.
5: With things everybody loves, like hybrid cars, youth bookstores, and small farms with the rawest milk you've ever tasted. <laughs>
1: That's my life. Even though you're in the bubble, you'll still stay fully connected to the world outside.
5: We've streamlined our high speed internet with only the good sites, like HuffPo, Daily Coast. Netflix documentaries about sushi rice, and the explosive comedy of McSweeney's.
1: (laughs) Clever. Need
5: entertainment. The Bubble has so much to do.
1: Go to a bar and engage with a wide array of diverse viewpoints.
5: Yes.
4: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Totally. Right?
1: The Bubble is a diverse community and safe space for everyone. We don't see color here, but we celebrate it.
5: And unlike the rest of America, anybody is welcome to join us. One bedroom apartments start at $1.9 million. Planning is underway to give you everything you need,
1: except police or firemen. Because we haven't found any who'd agree to live here.
5: It's their America now. We'll be fine,
1: right here in the bubble. Join us, starting in 2017. The bubble, it's Brooklyn.
4: With a bubble on it. Mike Slater.
3: <laughs> uh, so that's, that's the perfect divide that we were talking about. In last, that's Saturday Night Live last Saturday. Uh, perfect divide. City versus country. Um, I got an email here from Dan, Dave the other day. Dan. Excuse me, Dan. Uh, and I think this, this is right as well. Um, or at least this, this is part of the story. Uh, Abraham Maslow, he was a psychologist, American psychologist, mid-1900s. He came up with the hierarchy of needs. you probably heard of this uh, before. So it's usually a pyramid, and at the bottom is breathing and food and water. Right? Like the most important things to life. And the hierarchy of needs is the most important. Uh, right above that is safety. So resources, health, property, something like that. Above that is love, friendship, family, sexual intimacy, things like that. Then above that is esteem, right? So you're getting taller higher up in the pyramid, self-esteem, confidence, achievement respect by others stuff like that. And then finally at the very top of the pyramid is actualization. So morality, creativity, the arts, stuff like that. Um if you watch The Walking Dead, which is one of my favorite shows, um they they don't reference this, but this is a theme throughout the show. Um when the main characters are running from zombies in the woods, they're in safety mode. I mean, they're just food, water, like healthy. (laughs) They're just trying to like not die. They're at the bottom. Every once in a while, they will achieve when things are slowing down a little bit, they'll achieve the next level up the pyramid, right? Maybe they'll have a relationship here. Those form friendships, right? A little bit. And then they'll encounter a town, right? So they'll go inside. Do you remember inside the hospital? If you watch the shows, like season three, maybe they went to the hospital and the doctor there uh, was listening to classical music and there was a painting on the wall. Okay. That is, that's the highest level. It's art creativity, the arts. And he was living in his own little bubble free from the, the zombie world. So whenever the directors of of the episodes have a town where people are singing or there's painting or they're, they're worried about creative things, right? like the top of the pyramid things, that's a hint to the viewer that these people are all going to die because <laughs> because they're just, they're clueless, right? They, right. They, they don't really have the bottom of the pyramid because they're not safe, but they're pretending that they are by worrying about singing and writing and stuff like that. Anyway. So, uh, I think this is a, a good, that's the background I wanted to show for Sherry for, uh, Dan's email. He said, I like to think of the mindset of the city voter versus the country voter in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. As we all learned in our Psych 101 class, hierarchy hierarchy involves five levels of essential needs in every human being. Uh, Each need must be satisfied before the person can try to meet the next. If the foundational needs are on shaky ground, a person must work to shore those up before he tries to meet the higher one. And the highest one is self-actualization. So how does this correlate with city and country voters? He says city voters have all their lower me- needs provided for them by virtue of the fact that they live in the urban area. Now, these are broad brushes here, but I-, I think there's truth to it. Easy access to running water, electricity, sewers, shelter, food, transportation, all are conveniently accessible for the city folk. Moving up the pyramid, love is readily available in the city as is safety. Self-esteem is available through educational institutions and social gatherings of life-minded folks. The city dweller's single focus, therefore, is self-actualization. City life allows one to fret over such lofty dilemmas because the other needs are secure. They can focus on public funding for the arts, libraries, climate change, gay marriage, transgender bathrooms, plastic bag bans. I don't know if this is a thing you all realize in the rest of the country, but in California, we're banning plastic bags, so plastic grocery bags. Uh, Don't even get me started. Banning guns and diversity, right? These are all pursuits of the self-actualized person. Country folk, however, exist in a different world altogether. Based on their lifestyle, their lower needs on the pyramid aren't quite as secure. Self-actualization isn't even something they spend time thinking about. They need to be able to work with their hands, hands that build, hands that fix things. Physiological needs aren't necessarily available unless he makes them available. He may live on well water. And the power may occasionally go out. Roads are in disrepair, etc. And he has a town sheriff, but there's so few of them that security's up to him. He likely owns a gun to provide security for his family. People in the country cannot focus on self-actualization because the lower needs on the pyramid are not as secure. No one has time nor the desire to ponder their gender. They are what God created them. Sure, the climate's changing. It does every spring and autumn. He's also more likely to rely on God, not the government for his source of strength and meaning. He knows God has richly blessed him with what he has. And he knows he has been blessed to live in the greatest and the best nation ever created. Trump, though a city boy himself is able to tap into the values and concerns of the country folk. He understands the shaky pyramid of so many Americans and offered to improve the lower levels of the pyramid for many voters. Not surprisingly, he talked to very little about these self-actualization issues that the left obsesses about. Hillary referred to these voters as deplorable. Obama called them bitter clingers. Bill Clinton called them crazy rednecks. Remember, that was just a couple months ago. The media mocked them, and all because they don't live in a world where they have the leisure to fret over today's supposed crucial issues. And unless and until the Democrats understand Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, their party will be relegated to the small blue islands amid the sea of red in which we now live. I think that is uh, right. There's no element of truth to that. Now, obviously, poor people living in cities who don't have access to the lower needs, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but broad brush, I think that's right. And as we've been saying the last couple weeks, if the Democrats continue to run a party... Based on the concerns of the New York liberal elite, transgender bathrooms, climate change, stuff like that, then they'll never get another vote from anyone in the Rust Belt ever again. And this is a big chance for conservatives, right? Huge opportunity here. Not only in our cities, but all across the the Rust Belt and everywhere. Not, of course, the most important thing is to truly, genuinely help people's lives, but politically, I mean, gosh, if we can really do some incredible things in our inner cities and some really great stuff in our Rust Belt states, then why would people in those areas even concern themselves with transgender bathrooms ever again? People are worried about jobs. So let's focus on that. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On The
4: Blaze Radio Network.
2: Later on the blaze radio
3: network. So I'm going to be uh, a little rude here. I'm going to be blunt. I apologize. But I put this on Facebook. I said, if you believe as you will hear often these next few days, if you believe that Cuba has lower infant mortality rates and higher literacy rates than here in America, you need to ask yourself why you believe those lies, right? Like if you, if you take that lie at face value, if you just like accept that, you're like, wow, do they really? That's amazing. He's great. America's horrible. Like, if you believe that, like, you really got to ask yourself what's wrong with yourself. What's wrong with you? That's why I'm going to be rude. What is wrong with you? That and just like, <laughs> question your, your motives, your heart, where your head's at, that you would believe that. You really think that Cuba is going to report accurate infant mortality rates? You think the country that has forced abortions for women who who they believe may have uh, uh, kids born with with, uh, diseases or whatever, you think that 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 country is going (laughs) to report accurate infant mortality rates? Really? Okay. All right. Okay. You got a problem then. And this is all being parroted on TV as if it's true. I put that on Facebook and Austin wrote back, the same people who are saying Trump will be a dictator are calling Castro a reformer. Let that sink in. Uh, I want to quote here. Sorry, I know I just read. You're not supposed to read. Radio 101 is you don't read. Sorry, but I read that email. Um, I want to read here from Victor Davis Hanson. So Euripides, Greece, 500 BC. Stick around there again. Around <laughs> Aesop from 500 BC. Euripides around the same time. He asked the question, the age old question, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom. And I'll cut to the chase. The conclusion is cleverness is not wisdom, right? Being clever is not wisdom. So there goes uh, Samantha B. and John Stewart. Uh, wisdom is a a deeper appreciation and an understanding of human nature and timeless truths, and applying these truths to your life. That is the conclusion from Euripides. It is a deeper appreciation and understanding of human nature and timeless truths and applying these to your life. This is Victor Davis Hanson. One of my favorite historians, one of the greatest historians. Um, He's talking about wisdom in the 21st century. He says, is it to be judged? Wisdom is wisdom to be judged according to the values of those who inhibit the Podesta WikiLeaks archive, right? Some I mean, of the the WikiLeaks, all the John Podesta emails, all the people who emailed him and Podesta emailed back. and I, Like, are those, like, if we're supposed to, like, what is wisdom? Like, all right, well, let's look at the values of the people who John Podesta, Hillary's campaign manager, was emailing. Okay, we got to ask them what wisdom is. Yeah, right. Is being smart, def- and by the way, Victor Davis Hanson, if you don't know, he's conservative, so he's, he doesn't think that's the case, right? Is being smart defined as being on lots of corporate boards, having an impressive contact list of private cell phone numbers, name dropping one's Ivy League degrees, referencing weekends in the Hamptons or on Martha's Vineyard, or being ranked in the top 100 or 5,000 of some cool magazine's list of go-getters and people to watch? Or is there not wisdom in being able to drop an 80-foot pine tree with a chainsaw within a foot of the mark? Or to take apart a hydraulic ram in an hour? Or to steer a bulldozer on a narrow uphill road? Can MSNBC newsreader Brian Williams tell the truth? Any better than a Michigan lathe operator? Or Lois Lerner, formerly of the IRS and now enjoying a multi-million dollar retirement, is she more likely to file an honest tax return than the Wyoming rancher? Or would you feel safer knowing that press secretary John, Josh Ernst was working on a high-voltage wire outside your front door? Or is wisdom sometimes... Gained by losing the polish on one's hands? Is the wrinkled man's face as trustworthy as the 30 somethings peach fuzz or the Botox grin of the middle aged metrosexual on the evening news or the pollster who assures you that the election has already been decided before the voting? In this year of weariness with the elite and their definition of success and wisdom, lots of such questions are being asked. Gosh, that's good. And he says, you know, where's John Podesta today? Think about that. <laughs> Think about that. Well, how many days? Like What, three weeks now? Four? Three weeks since the election? John Podesta, a couple weeks ago, master of the universe. Master of the universe. John Podesta, campaign manager, Hillary Clinton, master. And now, what was he doing today? Or how about boy wonder Robbie Mook, who was to oversee the inevitable landslide victory of Hillary? <laughs> What's he up to these days? I'll end with this line. Do our demigods in Silicon Valley ever grasp that even their cosmos, their world, is a fragile and fickle place where yesterday's wise are rendered today's fool? I'm just going to uh, to leave that there. Just a reminder to reevaluate what true wisdom is. I'll tell you, it's nothing you can put on a resume. Now, that being said, in completely unrelated news, well, actually, we could apply that to Castro, too, right? All this praise of Castro. Those people don't have wisdom. I was just watching a uh, little segment on Good Morning America, and they had, uh, one of their reporters is a Cuban-American. His family fled Cuba. He was born here. But he knows the truth about Cuba, just as all Cubans do, right? <laughs> it's so funny of uh, all the Americans talking about what a reformer and how wonderful he was and all oh, literacy rates and, and the people from Cuba are like, uh, and Cuban Americans say, guys, horrible tyrant. Do not romanticize this guy. It's because the white guys on TV have no wisdom about who Castro really was. But the Cuban Americans and the Cubans, they do. They know they They have the wisdom, but we don't listen to them. We listen to Chris Matthews. <laughs> so, I want to relate all this to the meeting that Trump had with the press the other day. So they had an off the record meeting with Trump and Trump tower. So off the record means you can't say what happened. Um, right after the meeting, at least two people went right to the New York post to talk about what happened (laughs) or maybe Trump leaked it himself. I don't know, but apparently it got described as a, a Trump style dressing down and he, everyone was around the table, all the media guys. And, uh, he just, talked about how they're all a bunch of lying scumbags Uh, because usually they have a meeting like this, you know, a new president and they mend fences, right? Build bridges, mend fences. Uh, Nope. Apparently not at, at this meeting. Now I don't know what Trump's goal is here. I have a few ideas, but we don't need to talk about it here. I, I think the goal real quick is he, um, why would he align himself with the media? Media is the most hated institution in America right now. Right. Uh, so, and he knows that, Every time the tr- media hates Trump, it builds his appeal. So if he can continue to make enemies of the media, the media will hate Trump and do bad things to him and be unfair and all the rest. And the American people see right through that and love Trump even more because of it. So I think that's his long game here. Um, but, but here's my bigger point. I don't, I don't, not only do I not feel bad for the media and, you know, Jeff Zucker, CNN and all those guys, I don't even care. I don't even care about them. I feel the same about Jeff Zucker and everyone on CNN, as I do Robbie Mook and John Podesta. They're so important. And then they're not. And to me, they're just totally meaningless. Absolutely. Totally. Completely. meaningless. It means nothing. I go back to, I got some friends, um, back in Tennessee still, and they live in the country and you know, some of them don't have TVs and I'll be like, Oh, you know what'd you think about this movie? And they're like, ah, I don't even, <laughs> I didn't even see it. Like it means nothing to them. Like, the newest movie, like that. I mean, it just like, doesn't even, it doesn't even exist. It's a funny thing in life. Some things seem so important and then they're just not at all. And you realize how not important they are. It's so easy to get wrapped up in something. This happens a lot to me. You get wrapped up in it and then you're not wrapped up and then you're like, well, that was dumb. Like, what was that? So a few years ago, the wife and I would watch Dancing with the Stars, whatever night that was, Monday night. It was like two years ago, maybe. And it was just mindless fun. I'm not saying it's bad to watch these shows. I know that's not a bad show, uh, but we got wrapped up in it. We're like, oh, who's going to win this week? And blah, blah blah. And then we stopped watching for whatever reason. And now, like, I don't even like. I don't. Know. <laughs> is it even on? I don't even know. Like, is it happening? What day is it? I don't even know what who the people are. Right? It's weird. And there's worlds that exist in our country that I'm not even aware of. I'm not even attuned to. It's like it's not even happening. And and I look forward to this next year. This is my point here. I look forward to this next year where the media is just nothing. Just nothing. They're they're as insignificant to me as whatever show is on TV at 12 o'clock on the Learning Channel. Like, I don't even know. I just... Just meaningless, and I look forward to telling my now six-week-old son Jack, when he's doing a book report in uh, you know sixth grade, about the media, right? About the media industrial complex, and I'll, I'll talk to him all about it, and about how we used to bow down in front of it and listen to what the people on the TV said, as if they were so brilliant. And then one day, it was over time, but just one day, they just lost all credibility, and now they they just don't even exist. It's not even, I, I, I look, I really look forward to the day it's not even a thing. When my kid will be like, "What's C? What was CNN? What was Fox? What was M- Like, what were they?" I have explain to but they're just not the things because they're totally worthless. Glenn Reynolds uh, pointed out that the media had a special institutional role in society after World War II, but that was based after based on two understandings. The first was that people in the media had a lot of power, and the second that they would use that power responsibly. And this election cycle is finally confirmed that neither of those things are true anymore right so trump the, the, so let's do the first one that the media has power they tried to <laughs> tried to skew the whole election they couldn't they don't no, they have no power whatsoever we talked about this a million times that they, they f- just merely fill a vacuum but really they don't even have power trump completely bypassed the media the other day with his campaign video or with his um uh youtube video right talking about his first 10 things he's going to do or whatever right Went right to youtube he doesn't need cnn he doesn't need them Right. That used to be the only way to get to the people was to go through the gates. Right. And then with the gatekeepers. And he's like, I'll go around <laughs> they're like, no, you must go through the gates. He's like, Meh, I don't know. I'll go over here. So they have no more power anymore. And any influence they do have left that they're clinging onto, they don't use it responsibly. So they're done. They're meaningless. I'm out. Jake Tapper leaves his show for a week for Thanksgiving break and an entire segment on the bottom of the screen, it said alt-right founder questions if Jews are people. <laughs> Jay Tapper, was he, apparently he wrote uh, on Twitter how he's furious about this, talked to his staff. Like, what a bunch of hacks. Alt-right founder questions if Jews are people. Like, what are they even doing? They're totally meaningless. I'll tell you what, they're not wise. I'll, I'll leave it there. These people are not wise. Don't listen to them. 1-888-933-93. I'll wrap up this hour with a little piece of advice. From uh, the great C.S. Lewis. We'll do that next. Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
4: Mike Slater.
2: We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater.
3: Back to Austin's point on our Facebook page that the same people calling Trump a dictator are calling Castro the great reformer. What the heck is going on? Um, those same people can't think of any names to call Castro. You know what I mean? Like, like name calling, it's all like. Oh he's wonderful and this and he did that and there are these great things over here and literacy and birth rates and blah, blah blah. They can't think of any names to it. they're so good at name calling, but they can't think of any names to call Castro. Um but plenty for you, racist, sexist, misogynist, all the rest. Um I wanna quote C.S. Lewis here. So a little backstory. He was a professor at Oxford, this is nineteen sixty three. No, no, I'm sorry, nineteen sixty. Passed away in sixty three. And what happened exactly? He said something that students at Oxford did not fully understand great works of English literature because the great works were written with the assumption that the reader understood the Bible and the classics, the ancient classics and kids today in 1960 don't. So the students took exception and they wrote back uh, this letter in the Oxford newspaper calling professor CS Lewis saw a bunch of names and all the rest. So this is Professor Lewis's response. I love it. Uh, he said, Oh, do not misunderstand. I, I am not in the least deprecating your insults. I have enjoyed these last 20 years. La nu de Tréuncible. And now I am pachydermis. Uh, so that's French for it's an honor to have a target on my back. And pachydermis is, uh, I guess he actually said pachydermaceous, which would be thick skin. <laughs> it's just like, listen, oh, you can insult me all you want, right? I've, I've, I've loved having a target on my back and, and now I got a thick skin. He says, I'm not even rebuking your bad manners. I am not Mr. Turveydrop, drop. And gentlemanly deportment is not the subject I am paid to teach. Mr. Turveydrop drop is a character from a Charles Dickens book, which I'm assuming the people in 1960 that in the English department, English majors didn't know that reference, which is CS Lewis's point. you don't know the great works, whatever. Um, so he's like, I don't even care that you're super rude, right? Your insults, whatever. I like them. I like being insulted. And you're you're rude, whatever. He says, "This is it." What shocks me is that students, academics, men of letters, should display what I had thought was an essentially uneducated inability to differentiate between a debate and a fight. Here's the key line: You waste on calling me a liar and hypocrite time. That you ought to have spent. On refuting my position. Any man. Would rather be called names. Than proved wrong. I love that line. You waste time calling me all these names. When you could have spent that time refuting my actual position. Any man. Would much rather be called names. Than proved wrong. So. Anytime someone calls you a racist or whatever, just think to yourself, I'll take it. I'd rather be called names than proved wrong. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening
4: to Mike Slater.
2: Part of the next generation of talk radio. On
4: The Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater in three, two, one. you You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: Saturday, how are you? America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So, last week, I don't know if we got to this story, but you may have heard it. Um, the president of UVA, University of Virginia, which... Growing up, I wanted to go there so badly. It is stunningly beautiful. It is, it is perfect. It is, I love it. Is I just I wasn't a good enough swimmer uh, to get in. It is. Um, oh gosh, UVA, I'm super jealous of anyone who goes there. Founded by Thomas Jefferson, uh, his home is there, Monticello, and the entire campus is dripping with Thomas Jefferson. He's everywhere, right? He's the founder of the school for the love of people and our country. So. The president wrote an email to students and professors about Trump winning, which, for whatever reason, college presidents felt like they needed to do, and ended it with a quote from Thomas Jefferson, as the president of the school founded by Thomas Jefferson would likely do. 500 professors and students signed a petition. I don't know what they're exactly petitioning for, but criticizing the president from quoting Thomas Jefferson quote in light of Jefferson Jefferson's owning of slaves and other racist beliefs and they said that while some people may go to UVA because of Thomas Jefferson they go and teach at UVA in spite of him (laughs) all right so like that is that's absurd (laughs) that's so stupid This response here comes from Robert Turner. He's a law professor at UVA. And I really want to share all these facts here because it provides the proper context to the narrative, which most Americans believe right now, right? Most Americans have a negative view on our founding fathers because they were all a bunch of racist slave owners. Now, the reason why, we'll get to more detail later about why the left does this, why they need to characterize Thomas Jefferson and our founders like this. But really the argument is if they can undercut them and their credibility as humans, then, therefore, the Constitution is racist and we should just throw it away and, and have direct democracy, etc. So that's why they're really doing it. That's the bigger narrative, but people are falling for it. The Thomas Jefferson, let's just focus on him. Thomas Jefferson was a racist slave owner. So bad that the president of the school he founded can't even quote him in any other context. A couple facts here. First, Thomas Jefferson inherited slaves from his father and father-in-law when they died. Now, at the time, it was illegal to free a slave without permission from the governor. You needed government permission in order to free your slaves. You couldn't just do it yourself. Did you know that? Did you know that? I was a history major with a focus on uh, colonial and and early American history. Never knew that. Never knew that. I took a class called Hamilton and Jefferson with the woman who wrote the book, like like the foremost Thomas Jefferson historian. Her name is escaping me right now. Uh, Never heard it. Never heard that one time. It was illegal to free a slave without permission for the governor. So in 1769, Thomas Jefferson drafted a law that would allow, it's called manumission, right? the ability to free your own slaves. 19, sorry, 1769, he, dro- he drafted the law. It was finally enacted in 1782. But think about that. Did you know it was illegal to free, illegal to free your own slaves? I had no idea. So Thomas Jefferson did not buy slaves and keep them he inherited slaves and was trying to get rid of them to the point where he drafted a law (laughs) so that he could. Second point, when Thomas Jefferson wrote the declaration of independence, you know, you got your list of grievances and in there, in the list of grievances, he denounced the King of England for quote, waging cruel war against human nature itself. Violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty, in the persons of distant people who never offended him, capturing and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere. Wow! So, in the, so the, the, therefore, we are declaring independence from the king. Right? That that was like, wow! It's criticizing the king, waging a cruel war against human nature itself by capturing and carrying people and into slavery into different different... Now, that was written in the, in the uh, Declaration. Why is it not there? Because South Carolina and Georgia said they would walk out of the convention right there if it stayed. And then the entire independence movement would be over. So, that line was taken out. But Thomas Jefferson put it there. Oh, can't quote Thomas Jefferson, racist slave owner. Point three, Jefferson drafted an amendment to the Constitution that said all children born of slaves after eighteen hundred should be born free and, quote, should be brought up at the public expense to tillage, so agriculture, arts, or sciences according to their geniuses. So, so children of slaves should go to public school, basically. right? That never passed. There weren't the votes for it. But Jefferson wanted it to be ready for when public opinion would change, which he knew it eventually would. This is maybe my favorite one here. This is the letter Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1809 to a French priest. He said, be assured that no living person wishes more sincerely than I do to see a complete elimination of the doubts that I have myself entertained and expressed on the grade of understanding, intelligence, intelligence, allotted to the negro by nature. Okay, so real quick he's saying I've thought that you know maybe black people aren't as smart as white people. I've, thought, I've, I've I've entertained I've 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 entertained these doubts and and I I so look forward to the day more than anyone in this country I look forward to the day when science can prove that that's just not true. That white people and black people are the same in every way. But here's why I bring it up. He said, "But whatever be their degree of talent between white people and black people. It is no measure of their rights. Just because Sir Isaac Newton was superior to others in intelligence, he was not therefore Lord of the person or property of others. Gosh, it's so good. So Thomas Jefferson is saying, listen, even if black people are inferior in intelligence, and there's no one in this country who wants to prove that that's not true than me, but even if it is true, doesn't mean white people have the right to own them. Just because you may have, may be smarter, doesn't mean you have a right to to own someone else who's not as smart. Ah, oh, but he's a racist slave owner. Can't quote him. Last one. Seventeen eighty seven, second Continental Congress. This is where they came up with the uh, Declaration, or sorry, uh, Constitution. He was drafting the rules for the Northwest Territory, so Midwest today, and he said there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise than in the punishment of crimes, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. So if you commit a crime and the punishment is you have to be this person's a year or whatever, yes, but no slavery nor involuntary servitude in the Midwest Territories. Uh, So again, obviously, the Southern states rejected that, but... If that language sounds familiar, it's because the 13th Amendment, passed after the Civil War in 1865, is the exact same language. So something that Thomas Jefferson drafted in 1787 was taken word for word almost 100 years later. (laughs) And they enshrine it in the Constitution, just like Thomas, Thomas Jefferson wanted all along. But Thomas Jefferson is a racist, slave-owning bigot who we can't even quote today on matters completely unrelated. Amazing. If you asked people of the Civil War era who passed the Thirteenth Amendment, if you asked them if Thomas Jefferson was a racist, they would like, they, "What are you talking about?" They they say he was the the original abolitionist. Like he, like, we we literally took his words for the 13th, for abolition, right? For the 13th. Like what you, what you? Yet today, there's no more sinful human who ever walked the planet than, than one of the great founders of our country, Thomas Jefferson. Amazing. Now you would think, you would think that students at the University of Virginia would understand this context, would, would know this history. You would think the professors who speak at the, who teach at the university founded by him would have more respect for the man and know his history. Why? Why do they do this? Why do they attack our founding fathers? Well, it's a classic leftist attack, right? Attack the messenger. They can't attack the merits of the Constitution or of the Declaration. They can't argue with what our founding fathers created for us. So they got to go and try to discredit them as humans. Because if they, they think that if they can convince people that Thomas Jefferson is a racist, then that undermines the entire Constitution itself. Because why would we follow a document that was written by someone who basically was in the Klan? That's the argument. Or that's why they do it. But if I can go back to C.S. Lewis and talked about in the last uh, last hour, he said, you waste you waste time calling me a liar and hypocrite time that you ought to have spent on refuting my position, which these 500 professors and students never do with Thomas Jefferson. They just call him a racist slave owning slave owning bigot. He said any man would rather be called names than proved wrong, which these professors and students still haven't even tried to do. 1-888-900-3393 eight eight nine hundred thirty three ninety three 93 slater radio on Twitter let's uh let's come back I'll share a story we're on the uh, founding father's theme I want to talk about fake news and all this fake outrage about fake news we'll do that next and and I'll tell a Ben Franklin story with that Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word
4: you are listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network.
2: Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: So, I just want to talk about fake news here for a minute. Uh, first of all, this, this is a total made-up controversy. Uh, th- there's no way fake news stories swung in the election. Like, this, is, this is not how that works. Um, no one's mind was changed when they read a fake news story. So I think the most prevalent fake news story was that the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. There's no non, like, there's no one who hates Trump, hated Trump, and then read that story and was like, oh wow, I'm gonna vote for him now. Like that, like that didn't happen, and it didn't happen vice versa either. Fake news stories are only for people who already would be inclined to agree with the story. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So that that story about the Pope endorsing Trump is for Trump supporters to reinforce their position. That's how human psychology works. If you listen to the show, then then we talk a lot about that. Um, so it's just all like confirmation bias stuff. That's what it's appealing to. It's not trying to change minds. It's trying to appeal to people who would already believe one thing. Right? They're, it's easy. If you love Trump, it's easy for you to see that headline and be like, oh my gosh, right? Isn't that great? Like I knew it. It's not someone who's going to be, whose mind is going to be changed by it. So I mean, that's, but even if it did change minds, there's no way it would swing an election. Like that's just not even, not even close, not even close. Um, but here's the point I want to make here. There's always been fake news. Oh no, no one last point before that, sorry. Real news is becoming fake news. Right? I mean like, like just look at the headlines about Castro dying. Right? They're like, oh, what a great reformer for the, the people and like like that's a, that's fake news. And and all these stories of um what was the one the other day? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um Reince Priebus was asked on Meet the Press or something about a Muslim registry. And he said, Reince Priebus says, well, we don't rule anything out, but there will not be a Muslim registry, period. Every headline, Reince Priebus on Muslim registry, we will not rule anything out, right? And every article took that and ran with the headline. That headline is clickbait, right? If you stop a a sentence in the middle of the, the person's response, and claim that that's the response. right? Like, that's clickbait. That's a lie. That's clickbait. That's fake news. And it's CNN, right? Or NBC or whatever. That's fake news. That is fake news. This is a real, real news with fake clickbait news. And then lecturing us about fake news. Like, give me a break. They're fake news. All right, but here's a story I want to share. Uh, there's always been fake news. Since the beginning of our country, there's been fake news. Benjamin Franklin owned the Pennsylvania Gazette. And he made up stories all the time. Now, I'm not saying this is good. I'm not saying, you know, party on with fake news. I'm just saying it's not new. That's my point. So I want to share this one. This is my favorite stories of uh, Ben Franklin fake news. There's this guy named Titan Leeds. So Titan's dad, Daniel, owned uh, the Leeds Almanac. right? And in, in the Leeds Almanac, he printed astrology, right, horoscopes. Now, Ben Franklin, he was a Quaker. And he thought that was the devil's work, right? So he and and Daniel's uh, went back. Daniel uh, Leeds went back and forth, right? And and Daniel called Quakers horrible people, and Ben Franklin called Daniel Leeds every name in the book. So eventually, Ben Franklin decided, instead of convincing people that the Leeds almanac was a bad thing, I'm just going to make my own almanac without any astrology in it. Now, Ben Franklin would write under a bunch of different fake names, and one of them was Richard Saunders, hence the Poor Richard's Almanac. You may have heard that before. Huh? you heard of the Poor Richard's Almanac. That's it. It's Ben Franklin. In the very first edition, Ben Franklin wrote under the name Richard Saunders that Titan Leeds, who was Daniel's son, Titan Leeds was going to die this year. Okay, so, so you, know, the, you know the almanac, right? It's like well, the moon phases and the best time to plant different foods and all that. And, and one of the predictions for the year was that Titan Leeds was going to die. Now, he was an adult at this point, but Titan Leeds is going to die. Buy next year's edition to see if it's right. Okay, so Titan Leeds uh, read this and wrote articles saying, I'm not dead. Oh, no, no, I, sorry, sorry. The next year came out. The next year's almanac came out and said, oh, sure enough, he died. And they wrote an obituary. <laughs> he didn't die. But they wrote an obituary for Titan Leeds. So then Titan Leeds is like, I'm not dead. And he wrote all these articles. I'm not dead. So then Ben Franklin with a straight face in the Pennsylvania Gazette, his newspaper, claimed he did die. And someone else has been taking over his name and has been using it to write letters claiming that Titan Leeds is still alive. And Titan kept writing letters, like, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm totally alive. So then Ben Franklin said, oh, it's not, it's not Titan, it's a ghost, it's his ghost. His ghost has come back. And is writing letters on his behalf. And people believed Ben Franklin, and it ruined Titan Leeds' life. And then he died five years later. By that time, no one was buying Leeds' almanac anymore, because they thought the guy was dead. And when Leeds did die, when Titan Leeds did die, Ben Franklin's response was to thank the person, thank the person who was pretending to be Titan Leeds, and thank him for finally deciding to end their hoax. <laughs> okay, so that was Ben Franklin. Okay, that was the joke that Ben Franklin, some of the practical jokes that he would do in the fake news category. Now that's like more of the practical joke side, but he would run fake stories. There was one in particular where uh, he wrote a story about how Indians, Native Americans, were sending hundreds of American scalps, right? Like, so kill, they kill Americans, kill colonists, and then scalp them. And they were sending the scalps as trophies to the British king and members of parliament. And he wrote it in the Pennsylvania Gazette and then sent it off to Europe. Other countries in Europe where they read it and then they were shocked at the brutality of it and, and they hated the king and all that. So Ty- Ben Franklin made up that story to turn Europeans against the British. Now, I'm not saying this is good. I'm not saying we should do it. I just want to stop, with, because we do this a lot. In our fake outrage, people got to pretend like it's something new. And it's not. Let's not it's not new. And let's not pretend that Mark Zuckerberg is going to stop it. That's <laughs> not going to happen. The only way to stop this, because we don't want to be, you don't want to be tricked by fake news either. And you don't want to believe fake news. So the only way to stop it is to be an informed reader. If something seems crazy, the only thing you got to do, first of all, check the website. If it's a crazy looking website, it's not true. Usually if there's not an author, it's not true. But really just check it up on another website. Look at other sources. Just Google the headline again and see if it pops up anywhere else. If it doesn't, it's probably fake news. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network
4: Mike Slater. Slide a
3: Thanks for being here. This is uh kind of a fake news story too in a way. I guess it's more like pseudo news as much fake news but uh, the Hamilton story from last week. Stupid. Uh, I do want to share this one thing though because I think even though though the story is dumb, there's a good lesson to be learned here uh, so it's worth talking about. It comes from the great Mike Rowe, uh, a former thespian himself, an opera singer actually. And I love Mike Rowe. Super smart and articulate. Um, I think he's great. There's there's three people on Facebook that I, that I star so that every time they write something, it pops up at the top. Ravi Zacharias, Bob Goff, and Mike Rowe. Because I just think he's, he's awesome. So Mike Rowe's talking about what happened uh, with Mike Pence at the Hamilton performance. Uh, and he quotes Hamlet. So real quick, super Cliff Notes version of Hamlet. Uh, Hamlet's dad, Prince Hamlet, Uh, his dad was king and and the king was killed. So the uncle took over the throne and Prince Hamlet thinks that the uncle killed his dad, but he's got to prove it. So he writes a play and in it, he adds a scene where the main character is killed in just the same way that he suspects his uncle killed his dad. So he's going to put the play on and the king's going to be there, his uncle, and he's going to watch his uncle's reaction. And that's how he's going to figure out whether or not his uncle killed his dad okay so um i want to read this uh party this is where hamlet is talking to himself figuring out what he's going to do about the play he says my dear father's been murdered and i've been urged to seek revenge by heaven and hell and all i can do is stand around cursing like a blank in the streets like a uh be a woman of the night in the streets he's like darn it sorry family show i got to I need to get myself together here. Hmm. I've heard that guilty people watching a play have been so affected by the artistry of the scene that they are driven to confess their crimes out loud. I know I'll have these actors perform something like my father's murder in front of my uncle, and I'll watch my uncle. I'll probe his conscience and see if he flinches. If he becomes pale, well, I know what to do. The play's the thing to uncover the conscience of the King, the plays, the thing to uncover the conscience of the King. So there's your background. So Mike Rowe's point is that the actors of Hamilton did not need to lecture Mike Pence and by extension, you, but Mike Pence on diversity and inclusion. They did not need to stand up after the show and and lecture him for the 30 seconds that they did. About diversity and inclusion. They already did. In the play. That is the play. The point of the musical is. It's a celebration of inclusion and diversity. Right? It's a play about America's founding. And one of our founding fathers. Who was an immigrant. And it's a play. Portrayed by black actors rapping. Diversity. We get it. So Hamlet decided the best way to share his opinion about who murdered his dad was through a play. Lin-Manuel Miranda, the guy who wrote Hamilton, he did the same thing. He chose to share his opinions about inclusion and diversity through a play. So you don't need to keep going. Like, you already did that's that the 90 minutes was the point that was the lecture so here's mike rowe here i want to define one word polemic so a polemic um the root of the word is actually from the word war uh but it's a strong verbal attack on someone a polemic so uh, mike rowe says uh, hamilton is already a love letter to diversity it's a very persuasive homage to inclusiveness individuality and many other things that make America a place worth immigrating to the play delivers that message to everyone, including people who may have voted for Trump and Pence, but the cast speaking out as they did failed to make the play more persuasive. They simply made it more personal, more partisan, smaller. The cast forgot that the play is the thing. And by sharing their personal feelings with paying customers, they turn to play into a polemic and polemics are the most unpersuasive things of all. And the actor um, who did that, who read the, the lines, whatever, he went on TV the other day and talked about how he's not sorry and has nothing to apologize for and blah 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 whatever. So I just want to be clear, like, I don't I don't care at all. Like this is one of those fake stories. It's not really a story, but 24 hour news needs something to talk about. And Mike Pence did the right thing, right? He was asked about it, he's like, ah, I wasn't offended. Let's move on, whatever. And I don't think the actor should apologize. whatever. But I think they will all grow to regret it. Maybe not. Now. So it's been like a week. Was it two weeks ago or last week? I think it was last week. So a yeah, week's gone by. There is so a buddy of mine is on um, Broadway and the Lion King. So his, his Facebook feed is all like, you go guys. Like, that was amazing. Blah blah blah. So all those actors and the main actor or whatever his name is, he is going to go back to his circle in Broadway and they're all going to praise him and love him. Like he's the bravest, most courageous person in the world. And all stuff. And they're going to cheer them on, and and they're all going to feel great. They're going to feel like they're on top of the world. They're going to feel like they really stuck into the vice president and really gave a piece of their mind and all that stuff. But when it all dies down, maybe it'll be another week or so, maybe a year. But when it dies down, I think they will all feel worse. I think they'll I think they'll regret that they did it. I watched this documentary a couple weeks ago. So my, my son Jack, he's six weeks old. So. Doesn't sleep through the night yet. So, my wife takes night duty, and I usually pick up at like four or five in the morning so my wife can sleep until I got to go to work. So, we've been watching a lot of Netflix documentaries. So, we watched one the other day called Best of Enemies. And it's about William F. Buckley, who is the father of modern conservatism. He's uh, the founder of uh, National Review. And so, it's William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal, at the time, 1968, was the heart of the progressive movement. And they had a series of debates in 1968 at the Republican convention. So the documentary does a great job with the backstory. Super interesting. And they hated each other. They despised total, like absolutely hated each other because each person was a caricature of what they hated in the other side. Right? So, so, William F. Buckley hated progressivism and these ideas of of progressivism and the values. And Gore Vidal was the personification of that and vice versa. Totally hated each other. So at one point in one of the debates, Gore Vidal, the progressive, calls Buckley a crypto-Nazi. And they've gone back and forth a lot right, in these debates. But at that moment, Buckley lost his temper. Now, if there's any kids listening now, I do want to quote this in full. So if there's kids listening now, you can turn on the radio for a couple seconds. Buckley said, now, in his, in his, I don't to talk, you know, Buckley talks like this. Uh, but he said, now listen, you queer. Stop calling me a crypto Nazi or I'll sock you in the GD face and you'll stay plastered. And Gore Vidal loved it. Loved, oh, thought it was the, he got Buckley to lose his head. And lose his cool. And Buckley never lived it down. That moment tormented him for his entire life. It was his biggest regret. That one moment. Truly tormented him. On the last episode of his TV show, Firing Line, in 1999. The, the last episode, they did you know, a celebration of his life and career. And they played that clip and he was mortified because he thought every copy was destroyed he thought it was gone and here it is back from the dead so I, I bring that one up again because you know you would almost think William at Buckley would be like yeah got him got him good but man he, he grew to regret it deeply and I think the cast of Hamilton will come to see that moment was below them as well. They already had the entire play to make their point. As Hamlet said, the play is the thing. So thanks to Mike Rowe for that insight. one Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
4: You're listening to Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network.
2: 888-900-3393. Mike Slater is on.
3: Slater Crusader's got a few minutes here on our uh, post-Thanksgiving shoe. Uh, Again, this would be more relevant if this was a pre-Thanksgiving show, but uh, just the same. You can still be grateful. It's not too late. Uh, I I, I share this message every Thanksgiving. Uh, I I beg of you to please be wildly amazed at your Thanksgiving spread. Not just grateful. I don't want you to be grateful. I mean, yes, grateful. But I want you to be just stunned by it. What do I mean? Um, Let me quote from um, Mark Perry, the professor at University of uh, Michigan. He says, like in previous years, you probably did not call your local supermarket ahead of time and order your Thanksgiving turkey this year. I just showed up the day before. Why not? Because you automatically assumed that a turkey would be there when you showed up. And it probably was there when you showed up unannounced at the grocery store to select your bird. The reason your Thanksgiving turkey was waiting for you without an advance order Well, because of spontaneous order, self-interest, and the invisible hand of the free market. And even if your turkey appeared in your local grocery stores only because of the selfishness or corporate greed of thousands of turkey farmers, truckers, and supermarket owners who are complete strangers to you and your family, it's still part of the miracle of the marketplace where individually selfish decisions lead to collectively efficient outcomes. The fact that, let let me quote one more thing, actually. Uh, This is Jeff Jacoby from the Boston Globe. He said, the activities of countless people over the course of many months had to be intricately choreographed and precisely timed so that when you showed up to buy a fresh Thanksgiving turkey, there would be one, or more likely a few dozen waiting. This level of coordination that was required to pull it off is mind-boggling. But what is even more mind-boggling is this. No one coordinated. No turkey czar sat in a command post somewhere, consulting a master plan and issuing orders. No one forced people to cooperate for your benefit, and yet they did. When you arrived at the supermarket, your turkey was there. You didn't have to do anything but show up to buy it. If if that isn't a miracle, what should we call it? Adam Smith called it the invisible hand the mysterious power that leads innumerable people, each working to his own gain to promote ends that benefit many out of the seeming chaos of millions of uncoordinated private transactions emerges the spontaneous order of the market. Mm -hmm. I'll read this. All right, wrap up here. It is commonplace to speak of God's signature in the intricacy of a spider's web or the animation of a beehive. And that's true. But what about the kaleidoscopic energy? and productivity of the free market. If it's a blessing from heaven when seeds are transformed into grain, isn't it also a blessing when our private voluntary exchanges are transformed without ever intending it into prosperity, innovation, and growth? i in there. So here's the point. When you look at your thing, or when you now think back at your Thanksgiving table, take in the amount of work millions of people had to put into making that possible. Millions. Let's just take one thing. Let's just take, um, I was going to say cranberry sauce because I actually watched a Mike Rowe Dirty Jobs the other day for the first time in years and they were at a cranberry farm, which is pretty wild because they have to flood the field, flood the bog, and get all the berries that float to the top. Um, but let's just take, um, well, heck, I'll do cranberries. So you got all the guys who work at the uh, cranberry farm. You have all the people who make the farming equipment for the cranberry farmer. You have all the people who design the farming equipment, who manufacture the farming equipment, who manufacture the little parts of the manufacturing equipment, who make steel for the farming equipment. You have the guy on the oil rig, right, who makes gets oil, which is then turned into gasoline. You have all the people that do that. For the farming equipment to run you have the trucker and everyone involved in that right from the person who gets the rubber for the tires right every single aspect of that truck is made by millions of people and you have the trucker and then you have the person who uh, grows the coffee beans and then roasts the coffee for the farmer to wake up early in the morning and get a little bit of coffee before he goes out right i mean like that's for your no, and then you got the people who get to make the cans And then make the paper for the labels and the ink for the labels and who design the labels and who market ocean spray, cranberry sauce. And that's also that you can have cranberry sauce. And I I just whipped that out in 30 seconds, but like you can sit here for days and think about all the people who are directly and tangentially related uh, and essential to you having cranberry sauce. Now do that for every single item on your Thanksgiving table and every ingredient in your Thanksgiving meal. It's crazy. And it all happened perfectly timed, right? The turkeys didn't show up at the grocery store next week. (laughs) They showed up last week. Perfect. Perfectly every time without any federal government dictates and mandates and directives. Amazing. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and we'll see you next week. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word.
2: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.